Welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Tonight on the program, we talk with Dr. Jason Kinderchuk about the origins of COVID and whether or not the pandemic is over. Also, Dr. John Weisler answers your questions and clarifies whether or not alcohol is good for your heart. And Nicole Rand discusses nurse burnout. Are you feeling helpless with the Russian invasion? Learn how you can help the people of Ukraine. The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. And now, Maureen's Health Headline. You've heard his voice before. He hails from the University of Manitoba. His research focuses on the circulation, transmission, and pathogenesis of emerging viruses that pose the greatest threat to global human and animal health. These have included Ebola viruses, coronaviruses, and influenza viruses. He is none other than Dr. Jason Kinderchuk, who joins me on the line. Good evening, Dr. Kinderchuk. Good evening, Maureen. How are you doing this week? Oh, it's been a tough week. Uh, yeah, yeah, listen, I, you know, anybody that, uh, you know, that, that recognizes the last name, uh, you know, prob- probably gets an idea of, of where, my, uh, where my heritage is. Um, you know, we're, I, I'm one of many families that, uh, you know, that, that had, um, you know, family that, that emigrated to, to Canada in the early 1900s and, and uh, specifically to the prairies. And, you know, we're, we're watching what's going on and it's, it's difficult, right? I think that there, there's a part that I was explaining to, uh, to, to my uh, better half this week. You know, I, I think some of it is age where now I'm a little bit older and you, you think about things a little bit more from a maybe global perspective and historical perspective, but also there's that uh-huh. sense of this is my heritage. You know, it's it's a it's a difficult time for 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 many and, and no more than uh, obviously the people in Ukraine right now. Yeah, it's just horrible. I mean, it's just I mean, just absolutely awful. You couldn't. It's unimaginable, unimaginable and unspeakable tragedy, really. And um, again, our thoughts go out to the people of Ukraine and. You know, I feel like a lot of people, I myself feel extremely helpless. And I mean, really, what can we do but watch online, basically? You know, we're we're watching a war online, but there are things we can do. People can, of course, keep them in their prayers and also donate. And I'm going to be talking about that a little bit later on in the program, how you can help. Um, But, you know, COVID carries on, Dr. Kinderchuk. Mm -hmm. And the CDC has changed its guidance, especially around masks. So where do we stand on masks and when do we wear masks and who should wear masks? So what's the latest oh, on that? That's a good question. Listen, I, I was uh, <laughs> involved in, uh, in, in litigation in Alberta this, this past week as, a, as an expert witness. And, uh, you know, and having these conversations, uh, you know, about masking and what are the benefits and, and still hearing certainly some of the that the same tropes that we've heard for, for ages now about masking, um, it, it's a different time, right? Because there is that sense of we have to move forward. So, yes, it's uncomfortable, but how do we do this knowing that, that things certainly are, are changing and the situation is changing? And I think a lot of it is this idea of personal risk assessments. And it's, listen, this is something for me and for people that work in, in high containment and work in, uh, you know, with, with uh, exceedingly bad pathogens. We're used to this. We, we, take a look beforehand at all the risks that are associated with the things that we are doing. And we, we basically map it out, looking from risk to risk and seeing, okay, where, where can we have certain mitigation procedures that, that might be able to minimize any, any concerns? So, you know, types of gloves that you use in a lab, type of suit, your actions, your movements, all those things. So we, we, we transfer this over to our daily lives. Um, that's not something that the public is normally used to doing, but it's something that I think we have to think about doing not just for COVID, but for other things. And it's the idea of, you know, being attuned uh, to what, what transmission looks like in your communities, uh, you know, what information is available, um, you know, however that, you know, you are hearing public health presented, whether it's in terms of hospitalizations or case numbers, um, you know, your own personal health, where are you sitting? How do you feel? What is, what is your set of contacts been like lately? Has anybody gotten sick? Um, and, you know, and, and appreciating the situation, you know, right now, you know, we're, we're not quite in spring yet. So still cold, certainly still cold here in the prairies. Uh, a lot of people are still indoors. So uh, yeah, we're, you know, we're likely mostly triple vax now, but are you completely comfortable yet with that idea? And what is your circle of, of people around you and their risks for, for COVID? So when you take all those things into account, then you can start to say, 
okay, what are the different situations that I'm going to be in and where should I use masks? Where's my greatest risk? Where's my lowest risk? Those are the things that we're being asked to do now as individuals. And I, I think, frankly, we, we have to do this, um, but we also have to be able to help coach people with how to make these decisions. And it's not always easy. That Not every situation is completely ap- applicable to the next. Right. You know, recently I was in a major city within the last 24 hours in the U.S. and, you know, where masks were no longer required indoors. And yet I'm going to say 95 percent of people were still wearing masks indoors. Is it going to take us a little while to switch over from uh, wearing masks to feeling comfortable again, especially with Omicron? I think that kind of came out of nowhere for a lot of people, perhaps not the scientists. Um, but that also changed the game in terms of how, you know, it, it, it contributed to whether we should wear masks or not or how we did the calculations. The yep. metrics are different. We, we're not looking at the number of cases anymore. So are people, you know, going to take a little while, do you think, to, to switch over and feel comfortable not wearing a mask indoors? It's a good question. I, I don't know if it's going to take as long as people think, unfortunately. And I say that because there there is that desire to get back to what normalcy was. And I think we, we also still like to be a part of the pack, right? So if you go into a situation where you see the, you know, the majority of people now is becoming more and more uh, unmasked, are you comfortable as an individual to wear a mask? And, and do you also, do you worry about what the uh, repercussions are? Because we certainly know that there's been a lot of heavy debate on both sides and certainly confrontations on both sides with people masking and not wearing masks. So you have to take all those into account. And I think that's where I look at it and say, uh, listen, if people start moving generally towards being more comfortable without masking, I think it's going to change very, very quickly. And that's my concern is that this is one of the measures that we can use. If you start to lose that measure, do you start to uh, decrease your concern about other measures, about distancing, about, you know, how you're feeling, about, you know, toughing it out if you're maybe, you know, if your throat's a little bit scratchy, all those things that we've really taken account of for the last couple of years. Uh, And that's the thing we we don't necessarily know what that will look like um, as we move into uh, the, the different seasons. And certainly with Omicron, knowing it's still in the community, I don't think we you know, know yet what what we're going to see in regards to another surge or if it's going to be just a, a longer uh, descent in, in terms of cases. Yeah, a lot of great points there. I have a text message that has come in from somebody out there in Radioland. Do vaccines reduce COVID transmission? Some talk show hosts say yes, and some say definitely not. What should I believe? I had a, had a heavy discussion about Not this the talk in, show uh, host. Yeah, no, <laughs> no, I had a heavy discussion in my cross-examination this week about this. Listen, so the, the data continues to say yes, okay? So um, there, there is still a benefit in regards to reducing uh, the rate of infection in people that, that get uh, triple vaxxed. Um, but we've also now seen some studies coming forward that suggest that in households, when you look at vaccinated versus unvaccinated, there is a higher uh, secondary attack rate in those households where you have unvaccinated people. So what it suggests to us is that it's not only helping with, with blocking infection, but also the onward transmission looks to be impacted, which is what we would assume based on decreased symptoms and even viral loads and infectious viral loads, which we've seen. So it's complex, but the data is pointing to that. And of course, there's the behavior aspect on top of that too. Absolutely. I have one more question for you before we go to break, and then I want to talk about where the heck this thing came from. Um, I heard somebody say COVID is over until the midterm elections in the U.S. Does that kind of a, of a statement infuriate you? Yes, of course. It is. We, we, you know, we, we've lived in a period where this virus has, uh, has become extremely politicized, right? So the, the issue that I look at Uh, with this is that, listen, infectious diseases don't care whether we lean to the left or the right or the center. Um, They they are opportunistic uh, with with what we present to them. So trying to say, well, listen, this is only a concern if we're dealing with, uh, you know, elections or we're dealing with politics. Now, these things are around all the time. We just need to look at at things like influenza. COVID is not going to just disappear. It's going to be around for a while. We're going to go through ebbs and troughs over the next while. We don't know what that's going to look like, but it certainly is not something that is just based on political leanings. We need to be ready regardless of, of what uh, edge of the uh, political spectrum we sit on. And we have a caller on the line, uh, Mary from Winnipeg. Hello, Mary. 
Hi, thanks for taking my call. You know, in Winnipeg, we've got over 500 people in hospital with COVID. That indicates to me that they're seriously ill. I just don't see that being reflected in public policy of loosening things up. And then secondly, I want to say how disillusioned I feel going back oh a year and a half ago saying once we have the vaccine everything's going to be over we're far from it yeah yeah no mary you bring up you bring up two excellent points right i mean the first part is with hospitalizations uh we still have to appreciate that whether they're in icu or just regular hospital care that's taking up beds it's also taking up support staff so that, that is a continual concern for us, and that decreases the ability to deal with people with non-COVID-related procedures. So that continues to be an issue. Same thing with the vaccines. The, the messaging regarding, listen, we get vaccines out, this is all going to be over. You know what? That is something that we shouldn't have ever been saying, that vaccines were a part of this. But certainly, unless you're going to get global distribution up and you're going to be able to get mass vaccinations out, it, it wasn't going to be the holy grail. Uh, it helps, but it takes a lot of other efforts as well. Dr. Jason Kinderchuk is my guest. Dr. Kinderchuk, thank you so much for staying on the line. If you have a question for the doctor or a text message, the number to call is or text is one 399 9898 That's 1-877-399-9898. Right out of the gates, we're going to start with Johnny in Calgary. Hello, Johnny. Yes, thank you so much for taking my t- my call. I don't know how much time is left before you go uh, off the air, but uh, I mean for the next break. But uh, what is really bothering a lot of people in this province here in Alberta? I know you are in Vancouver and Dr. Kinderchuk is in Manitoba and I am calling you from Alberta in uh, Calgary. Uh, I don't understand um, and many people they don't understand why here in Alberta Dr. Dino Hinshaw, who is the chief medical officer, who is a doctor like your guest, who is qualified to make the rulings about relaxation or not relaxation of all rules and regulations surrounding COVID, is quiet and doing nothing. And then Jason Kenney, who is only a politician, and before he became a politician, he was a a student at a seminary of Catholic Church and has no qualification in any regard when it comes to medical decisions, makes all the decisions in this province surrounding COVID. And as you must have heard by now, from 1st of March, Tuesday, uh, in this province, he's regarding as COVID doesn't exist. And the same scenario we had last June when he relaxed and said uh, COVID is over. And then we had uh, wave after wave and dead people after dead people, over 4,500 of them. And now here we go again, and he's doing the same thing. Thank you so Thank much. You, for. Oh, you. You're welcome. Thank you. Um, yeah, there we go. Before COVID, nobody ever would have said he's just a politician. <laughs> but he's just a politician, and my guest is a scientist. <laughs> um, thoughts on that? That's that's politicizing this uh, uh, COVID, yeah, I guess. It's an it, example it, it of is. politicizing it. I mean, listen, we, I think we, certainly I was in Saskatchewan at the time when, uh, when things started to reopen pretty drastically. Saskatchewan and Alberta, during that Delta wave, got hit very, very hard. Um, I think there's going to be a lot of discussion. Was it all related to the relaxation restrictions or was it because they were seeing, you know, chains of transmission that were starting that were un, you know, un, un, unmanageable? Uh, there, there's a lot of questions to be, to be had, right? But ultimately, there are those two things correlated with one another. Um, other, other provinces did not do... Uh, as poorly. So you look at that and say, okay, well, how many times do we go through this game where we say, okay, listen, we're at a point, everything looks good. Let's, let's break loose and, and throw things open and, and we're ready to go. And, and we find out that we're not. So I guess I, I'm so surprised by the fact that, yes, we need to be able to re- reduce restri- uh, restrictions and, and relax things, but we, we've got to be cautious when we do this because we don't necessarily know what Omicron is going to do um, as we open up those floodgates. So I, I, I know that there's certainly a, a, an economic standpoint of this and certainly a, a social and behavioral standpoint uh, for, for people's mental wealth, uh, wellness and physical wellness to get back to normal. But we also don't want to keep making the same mistakes. And I think 
that's where people are tired. Um, when you keep going through the ups and downs and ups and downs, that gets exhausting. We're exhausted. I'm exhausted. Um, hopefully this time, maybe something will work out. But man, uh, that's why I think it comes back down to individuals making good choices. You, you still at least have some power in this and being able to, to make those decisions for yourself. Absolutely. Couldn't agree with you more, Dr. Kendra Chuck. We're going to have to talk next week about the origins of it because we're out of time, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, well, stay well, stay safe, and uh, thank you so much for joining the program. Thanks, Bori. Take care. The doctor is in the house. Well, not exactly. The doctor is on the line. He's an experienced general cardiologist in private practice and the head of cardiology at Lionsgate Hospital and the North Shore Heart Center. His areas of specialty are hypertension, atrial fib, coronary artery disease, pacemakers, and sports cardiology. He is Dr. John Weisler. Good evening, Dr. Weisler. Good evening, Marine. How are you doing? I am doing well. How are you? And thank you for having me. That's great. I'm sure it's been a busy month for you. You're welcome. Thanks for joining me on the program. Appreciate it. Uh, Let's start out with a quick question. Um, from a listener, a text message actually that I received. Can you please ask Dr. Weisler Maureen if he is on the program tonight? So this came in a little bit earlier. Um, My relative had lung cancer four years ago, had a lesion resected. Uh, Treatment was delayed. It was diagnosed a little bit late um, and placed on medication. Now has shortness of breath, occasional cough on minimal walking, going upstairs and is going to follow up with their doctor. Uh, however, is this shortness of breath uh, more a symptom of atrial fibrillation or the lung? And, and in short, can atrial fib present or present itself with respiratory issues only? Why don't we start with um, what is atrial fibrillation, Dr. Weisler? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question um, from the listener. So um, atrial fibrillation is a disturbance of your heart's rhythm. So and it's, it's very common. About one in four people over age 40 will get it at some point in their life. And so the normal heart, it has a nice regular electrical signal and it squeezes. So the top part of the heart squeezes and then the bottom part squeezes. And it has a nice orderly sequence and then the heart relaxes and gets ready to pump again. Fibrillation, um, the top part of your heart, which are the atria, they don't squeeze properly, and their their electrical signal is chaotic, or what we what we call fibrillation. So, the atria wiggles and doesn't contract effectively. The bottom portion of the heart, which is the ventricle, still works, but it relies on signals from the top. So, when the signals from the top are chaotic, the bottom portion of the heart is irregular, so it speeds up and slows down, and it doesn't work quite as efficiently. And it's very common. And, you know, some people don't even know they have it. Um, A lot of people, though, will feel something most common would be like feeling your heart pounding or thumping because it often beats faster than it should. And then shortness of breath is potentially one of the symptoms, too. The heart doesn't work as efficiently uh, when you have this. And this arrhythmia is very important to to watch out for um, because it also can put us at risk of stroke when the top part of our heart doesn't squeeze well. Um, the blood can sit there and form clots, and those clots could then break off, cause a stroke, go elsewhere. So it's important to be alert for that. And, and so it's important for this person too. And I and I believe they were they were planning to follow up with their with their doctor. Um, but uh, so it can present itself with respiratory issues only. And I would imagine people are quite fatigued with atrial fib as well. They certainly can be. They can either be tired much of the time or they can be okay sort of at rest and then get more fatigued than they should when they try to, you know, exercise, try to walk or do their usual activities. Their heart doesn't work as well, so you don't have as much reserve to let you, you know, run or go up a flight of stairs or whatever it is that you want to do. Right, exactly. And if you have a question for Dr. John Weisler, cardiologist, how often do you get exposure to a cardiologist? Usually there's a long wait uh, to see a cardiologist, give us a call. The number to call is one 399 That's one 399 You can text us there as well. I have another question for you. Um, this dear Dr. Weisler, I am a 55 year old woman. I run long distance. I'm fit. I have a, I mean, I have a good weight. <laughs> My father has stents recently and recently as well, my grandparents have had strokes. I have random tingling in my left arm with numbness that keeps me awake at times. 
30 minutes of heart palpitations and pain in my heart area. I take 81 milligrams of aspirin a day. I had a halter monitor and ECG. Should I think heart attack or stroke? <laughs> this is the self-diagnosis that I see so often uh, in in people. Really um, going to the doctor would be my advice. But anyway, Dr. Weisler, what are your thoughts you know, here? I, th- I think, I, think um, I would agree with you, Maureen. The, the most straightforward answer is to you know, go to the doctor and be assessed by, you know, a a medical professional. And, you know, I I always view like the self-diagnosis, it's a good, like, starting point for concerns or conversation, but you should also take care not to get yourself overly worried, um, because it may be nothing serious. Um, Breaking down um, this uh, listener's symptoms, um, the tingling and other sensations in the arms, I mean, that can be cardiac, but it's more often something else, you know, compression of a nerve or something musculoskeletal. So I think it's still important that he or she, I guess, I guess she, she said she was a 55 year old um, lady. She, um, it'd still be important for her to run that by her doctor and make sure that it, it may be nothing serious. Um, but you certainly want to get out if it's something new and, and bothering you. And then the 30 minutes of heart palpitations, um, most causes of palpitations aren't serious, but, you know, we mentioned atrial fibrillation a moment, a moment ago, that can be. So it's, especially if this keeps happening, it's important for us, you know, for you to wear the monitor when you get symptoms, which can be tricky. You know, the she mentioned her uh-huh. ECG um, and her Holter monitor. So for those who don't know, a Holter is a 24-hour long monitor on your heart that you wear, and it records your heart's rhythm. Uh, and it's neat technology. Uh, it can be a little bit annoying because you can't shower while you while you have it on. But you know, for for one night, hopefully that's that's okay. Um, the the Holter monitor is good technology, but a lot of rhythm problems are intermittent. So they'll be there one day and not the next. And you know, we, we notice in cardiology a bit of Murphy's law. You know, the, the day that you wear the monitor will be the day that you don't have symptoms. So. I think, um, you know, number one, uh, your listener should review this with her doctor. And then number two, if she had her holter on on a day when she didn't have symptoms, it's important to, you know, especially if the palpitations keep happening, to try and achieve that, to to see what the rhythm is doing when she has symptoms, because that really, you know, tells us how to treat you. Uh, Now, she also mentioned that her father has stents. So there's obviously a history of heart disease in her family. Uh, So for the listeners, what exactly are stents and why are they used? Yep. So stents are used for broken, blocked arteries in our heart. Excuse me. So um, when we get plaque on the arteries to our heart, the plaque can interfere with blood. So your heart is a muscular pump, and it's got arteries on the outside. And if you get too much plaque, which is cholesterol and cell debris that accumulates, the plaque can interfere with blood flow, and we can have a heart attack or we can get chest pain or get other symptoms, shortness of breath and other symptoms from that blocked artery. So when the blockage needs to be opened, um, specially trained cardiologists can open it with a stent. So it's a minimally invasive procedure. They do it with a needle poke in your wrist or in your groin where you have a large artery. And then because the arteries come from the heart, um, the doctor can just uh, gently steer. They steer a tiny wire inside your artery. They steer it backwards into your heart and they use an x-ray to know where they are and then um, when they're going to open the artery they can use a balloon Uh, so the balloon goes in it's deflated then they inflate it which opens the blockage it pushes the plaque out of the way on the outside of the balloon is a metal coil which is the stent so they deflate the balloon but the stent is left behind that holds the artery open and helps to prevent it from you know narrowing up again and and closing up again so it's a day procedure Okay, what's the failure rate or or the success rate um, of um, uh, stents? And I have a caller as well on the line, which we'll get to in yeah, a second. So the success rate really varies a lot from uh, person to person. It can be quite good. Um, a lot of the, you know, in, in the short term, you can have problems where the stent wasn't deployed, which is extremely rare. You know, maybe it wasn't fully expanded or um, shortly after the stent goes in a clot forms on top of it. That's why when you get a stent, your doctor will give you aspirin plus an additional blood uh, to help keep the, the stent from clogging up again. And if you follow the instructions, the rates are very low. It's, you know, one or 2% maybe in a year or probably less than that now. And then long-term years down the road, many people don't need stents again. Um, so it, it really depends on how well you look after yourself, you control your cholesterol, control your blood pressure, don't smoke, all these other things. 
Um, and so many people do well. Stents usually are very safe and they can be quite effective and have excellent long-term results, although part of it depends on ongoing follow-up between you and your, and your doctor. That's great. I mean, that question is so rich with so many things, and I want to get back to that. Uh, but I'll, I'll go to Benny in Abbotsford, British Columbia. Hello, Benny. Yes, good evening. Uh, my friend was a uh, shoemaker, and for 80 years, he would pound his arm, pound, pounding nails into leather, etc., etc. And he was in excellent shape. When he died, but I was told he died because he wore his heart out by working too hard. Is that a possibility? Uh, so, a uh, good question. One I get a lot, um, and and not really. No, I mean uh, exercise is uh, extremely beneficial and it's protective. So, you know, there's these ideas like you have like a certain number of heartbeats in your life and stuff like that. All of those are, are not true. Um, you know, there are some some factors like uh, if you're in a very demanding job and it's stressful, you know, chronic stress can be harmful to your heart. Um, and, and, you know, that increases the risk of heart attacks. Um, so maybe in that sense, you could wear your heart out. But in general, staying active is only protective and you can't really like use your heart up you know the heart uh, will adapt if you train it you know it will work more more efficiently over time so it's uh it's not really possible to wear your heart out like that like the manner that your friend um, you or you were wondering about with your friend but okay, he lived he, he worked much. for eight benny did you say he worked for 80 years well, no, I didn't worry. He started off in Russia there, and like I say, he worked very hard. He was always, uh, you know, pounding his arm up and down, eh? I and, see. And uh, like I say, I was shocked to hear that the I was told that he died because he worked so hard and he wore his heart uh, out. I've never heard of that. So I thought I'd just ask yeah. the doctor just, just to see if he no confirmed that or not. That's, Thank you very much. Yeah, that's question. great. Thank you. Thank you so much for the call. Yeah. I have another question for you that has come in by text, Dr. Weisler, before we get back sure. to that other text message. This is from Lisa from Edmonton, Alberta. I have an occasion, I have an issue occasionally with my heart skipping a beat. Could that mean I'm in love? I heard that somewhere. <laughs> Yes, of course. That's my answer. Go ahead, Dr. Weisler. We'll go to the cardiologist yeah. next. <laughs> um, again, I, I think I might defer to you on that one, Maureen. I mean, maybe you're in love. <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, you know, skip, skip beats are, are very common. Uh, so um, you, you get when it's an isolated like thump or skipping, then your heart goes back to normal. Usually they're not serious. Um, you can get extra electrical signals either in the top of your heart or the bottom, so premature atrial and premature ventricular contractions, we call them. So the electrical signal just happens a bit early. And um, they're usually benign. Uh, if they bother you a lot, uh -huh. you also want to see your doctor to make sure. But they're generally not serious. And so things that can cause them, you know, yes, I think love or, you know, excitement or something new uh, could certainly trigger them. Some people are, are prone to them and it, you know, takes very little to cause them. And other ones would be sleep, caffeine, you know, too much alcohol, um, you know, can all can all trigger them as well. But uh, maybe, yeah. maybe, maybe you're in love. That one's tough for me to answer, but maybe, maybe you're in love. <laughs> in love or not in love, my heart has skipped a beat. <laughs> and all those reasons go. that you mentioned. I have another text yep. message for you, Dr. Weisler. Dear Dr. Weisler, yep. I recently had an echocardiogram and stress test. I'm 59 years old. My doctor says everything is fine. My older brother died of a massive heart of massive heart failure at 59. Should I be concerned? And that's from Charlie in Calgary. So a good question. And one I see a lot in, in my clinic. Um, you know, I, I think the most of my patients do have established heart disease, but I do get a significant number of patients that have similar questions with a concerning family history. So um, a detailed answer really requires like a full uh, consultation. You know, what were the details with your brother? Um, did he smoke? Uh, did he look after his risk, risk factors well? Um, you know, and, 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 and then uh, if, if the two were similar, like they both didn't smoke, they were similar levels of activity, then there probably is a genetic predisposition. So um, the evaluation that um, this uh, listener has done is a good start with the echo and stress test. One other thing to consider that you might want to discuss with your, you know, family doctor or primary care provider, and 
see a specialist if necessary, is you can do more advanced imaging of your heart. So you can do um, something called a calcium score, which is a special type of CT, to look for plaque that's uh, at an earlier stage. Maybe you don't have symptoms from it yet, but you know you will in the future. And um, so you can identify it that way. You can go a step further and look at the arteries in detail with a fancy type of CT called a CT coronary angiogram. Uh, are those, you know, you don't always have to do those, but they're appropriate because you know, the things we look at, Marine, things like cholesterol and family history, they predict your risk on a population level. So, you know, a certain number of patients with, um, you'd say, an abnormal cholesterol will have heart disease. But there's a lot of variation from individual to individual. So when it comes down to, you know, I think I'm doing everything right, but my family member had this happen. You know, is there something genetic that these tests, the, the tests you've done so far haven't identified? That's where more advanced imaging like the CT can be can be helpful. So it's kind of a complicated question, and again, it really depends on the the details um, of that individual. But there is additional um, imaging uh, that can be helpful. Welcome back to the show, Dr. John Weisler, cardiologist, is my guest. Dr. Weisler, I just want to go back to that original text that we start, oh, the second one that we started with. Um, this woman who's 55 years old, she said her father had stents. She's 55. Her father had stents. Let's say he's 75. Uh, her grandparents have had recent strokes. They're probably 95. You know, I'm being conservative here. Um, Mm -hmm. is that something to worry about or is that something to expect in terms of a family history? If your grandparents at 95 have had Um, a stroke? So it, it, it depends on the age at which, um, you know, the, the uh, family members first had their uh, stents or their their stroke. So a high risk because coronary disease is, is very common and it can happen even if you do everything right. So for men, we define premature disease as occurring in a male uh, greater or less than 45 years old and a woman less than 55, 55 years old. So if mm-hmm. your uh, parents had their stroke or heart attack um, before those age cutoffs, that it's a significant increase to your own risk. If it's um, later, if they had their disease later in life, it has still a little bit of impact, but less in terms of your own risk. Uh-huh. Thank you so much. And then also this person takes 81 milligrams of aspirin a day, so a baby aspirin every day. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so generally not recommended uh, for most healthy people. The risk of aspirin is small, but it is there. It's mostly a risk of gastrointestinal bleeding, uh, so it can upset the lining of the stomach and small intestine and cause ulcers. So that risk is low, but the benefit if you're otherwise in good health is also quite low. So aspirin is very effective at reducing uh, a second heart attack after you've had one already. Um, You know, it's nice, of course, to prevent heart disease, but um, it's much less effective uh, when you're chance of getting disease is lower if you're otherwise healthy. The benefit of aspirin at preventing disease is otherwise lower. So, And this evidence has changed over the last few years, but for most people without a history of heart disease, aspirin is not recommended, including probably the listener. She's probably too healthy and wouldn't derive much benefit. Right. Well, that sounds great. You know what? I really wanted to get to alcohol consumption and uh, cancer risk and as well the effect on your heart and whether a glass of wine is good or not, but we're running out of time, unfortunately, so I'm going to have to ask you back. Great questions coming in tonight from the listeners, though. All great questions. Really appreciate it. And, of course, stress. And right now with what's going on in in the Ukraine, I mean, literally President Zelensky is grace under fire, but it must be having a tremendous impact and potentially on his heart as well. But thank you so much, Dr. Weisler. I really appreciate you coming on as usual. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. You got questions? She's got answers. The nurse is in for Nurse Talk. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. I'm super excited about my next guest this evening. Um, she is a former med tech. She's done work in uh, human resources, and she helps to connect you to your what and your why. And these days, she's helping nurses and med techs, med tech professionals, to end burnout and find balance in their careers. She offers free career breakthrough assessments as well. And she is none other than Nicole Rand. She has a master's in business administration and a, she's a certified staffing planner. Good evening, Nicole. Thanks so much for joining me. Hi, good evening, Marie. Absolutely so glad to be here. Oh, well, it's wonderful. And you're joining me from sunny California. <laughs> Warm? 
Sunny? Yes, yes. <laughs> the frigid you north. would never know that it is winter here. <laughs> nice, nice. Anyway, so we start with a little envy. Okay. Um, nurses these days, a lot of nurses are suffering burnout. A lot of nurses are trying to find ways to deal with the understaffing, the COVID um you know, cases, the number of hospitalizations and deaths. Uh, It's very, very difficult to be a bedside nurse these days and also a med tech. So what um, you support nurses uh, through and med tech professionals through burnout uh, to end burnout, in fact. And, you know, burnout nurses were at risk for burnout long before this pandemic came along. Uh, so tell me why why is it that you've chosen this field and um, and and just tell me a little bit about it well I'm actually so glad that you brought up um, the idea that nurses were at risk for burnout long before the pandemic because that's so true it's absolutely true um, and it's just now that the pandemic is exacerbating a problem that has existed for quite a long time. And of course, that is a topic all unto itself. But to answer your question about why I chose to go down this path um, is because when I started um, my career, I was in, like I said, a med tech um, more specifically, I was a, a monitor tech unit secretary. So I was on the floor with the nurses. Whatever happened to the nurses happened to me. We had to work together as a team to survive our shifts, which we never knew what was going to happen. Um, and so that's why I went into this field is because I understand what they are going through, what nurses are going through at MedTechs, and basically any clinical staff that has to work in direct patient care, I understand what that is like. I've also been in a position of extreme burnout myself because it is a very, especially when you work in the um, more intensive units, um, it is a very taxing um, and traumatic uh, job to work in uh, day after day, shift after shift. And so I wanted to help nurses who are feeling really stuck, feeling really burned out, find a way out because I've been there. I had to do it on my own. I had to go through um, a lot of essentially mental gymnastics to try to find my way out. And so my whole goal is to help individuals not go through the same thing that I went through. And, and I think you have to have been burned out uh, to understand burnout. <laughs> Having burnt, been burned out myself, <laughs> I, I, I understand it also. But what are some of the symptoms of burnout? Um, honestly, I talk about this a lot on my LinkedIn profile. I think for the majority of us, especially nurses, and you can um, definitely relate to this and speak to this, but uh, especially nurses, is that because you're in the industry and because you're in the field you are, and because there are a certain level of expectations, you swallow everything. You hold it inside. You know, you go into the bathroom or into the closet and cry, and then you just come out and act like everything is fine. Uh, so I truly believe most people don't recognize the symptoms as burnout is happening and only once they've really gotten to it. And the big symptoms for realizing that you're burned out is no, is, is feeling again, feeling that, that trapped and stuck, stuck feeling. Um, also, Depression is a big one. And I, I try to stay away from anything that gets too much into dealing with um, things that should be left for a therapist because I'm not a therapist. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to, you know, make those distinctions clear. But, um, you know, really, really getting to that point where you're not wanting to go into work if you, in some cases, a lot of people think about harming themselves. Um, and that was kind of the level that I got to personally um, because I felt very stuck. I didn't know where to go. 
Because you get very siloed in the medical field. Yes, you um, do. And you, you often and so, feel, nurses often feel overwhelmed and, and emotionally drained prior to getting to that mental exhaustion. Or you, you mentioned that they don't want to come into work because, but it might be that they are don't feel that they're capable of meeting the continuous demands of uh, working in an ICU or working in an emergency department where they're getting screamed at these days by uh, lots of patients. And, um, you know, so it's really a a state of that emotional, physical, and and mental exhaustion, would you say? A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And exactly, exactly. And that's what you're what so many nurses are experiencing. Um, and unfortunately, I have run into individuals that don't even like to hear the term burnout because they feel like somehow it is their fault. And, and that's dealing with a whole different um, mental level there is understanding. And, I, and, and when I started realizing that, honestly, Maureen, then I started really talking about how burnout is not your fault, but also how to start recognizing when you are burning out, because there's so many things that go into facilitating a burnout in an employee, especially when you're talking about somebody in the medical field. You know, you have the things you can't avoid like dealing with these traumatic situations, you're literally dealing with life and death every day. And, and that can in and of itself take a toll on you. You're having to deal with how your facility treats you as an employee. You're having to deal with, you know, how you react to everything. So um, it's a really big, deep and broad topic just talking about burnout alone. But that's really some of the surface stuff. Absolutely. Well, there is a stigma associated with burnout because people will feel weak. They feel like they can't do it. They're embarrassed in front of their colleagues. Maybe their colleagues don't understand. I mean, it is it's it can be very traumatic and um, and very difficult for people. And then people can go on to face anxiety disorders as well, which, as you say, you know, they may need to go and speak to their physician. Uh, and, it, and it also can cause tremendous stress, raise blood pressure, loneliness. They can feel like nobody understands and, and suffering with all those physical um, symptoms. Now, you do mention, and I'd, I'd like you to stay on the line because um, we're going to go to break, because, but you do mention on your uh, LinkedIn profile that you have a, or you provide free career breakthrough assessment. So if you don't mind staying on the line, Nicole Rand, and uh, we can come back and we'll talk about those free career breakthrough assessments, which sounds like a lot of people could use today. Here, my guest is Nicole Rand. She has an MBA. She's also a certified staffing planner with a background in human resources, and she was a former med tech professional. She helps nurses and med tech professionals find their what and their why, and she also helps them to end burnout. And a lot of nurses and med techs today and many other healthcare professionals are facing burnout given this pandemic that has been going on and on for the last two years. And there seems to be no end in sight anyway, especially for the healthcare providers and and nurses and med techs. Burnout is a state of emotional, physical, and mental exhaustion caused by excessive and prolonged stress. And I think we can say that the pandemic has certainly provided us with a lots of doses of excessive and prolonged stress. And it's when people start to feel overwhelmed, emotionally drained, depleted, and they are unable to meet the constant demands of their life, not just their job, but of their lives at home. Nicole, thank you so much for staying on the line. You talk about free uh, career breakthrough assessments that you have available. So tell me a little bit about uh, what a career breakthrough assessment is. Yeah, so what it is, is I primarily work with people one-on-one, and it's all about them, and it's all about understanding where they are currently in their career, and it's very interesting because when we first start talking, people don't initially want to express what they're going through, and they will start off with, oh, you know, I'm happy, or I'm doing okay, And it's more about getting to the root of what's really going on with them, getting them to open up. Again, like I said, it because my whole program is based around them understanding themselves 
internally, listening to their heart, shutting off their brain. Um, and it seems like it's so obvious, but it's something that we so rarely do for ourselves to really understand ourselves, to really dig into our emotions and our feelings. So with the assessment, it's usually about, you know, 30 minutes to an hour, depending on the individual. And it's just really getting to know them and their situation and understand if they would be a good candidate to move forward in the program, or if there's little pointers I can give them to help them with what they're going through now, because everybody's in such a different place. I haven't I have clients that have similar issues, but, you know, everybody's come to them through different routes. So it's really, yeah, it's all about understanding them and where they are and getting them to open up and feel comfortable to talk to me and be authentic about their experience. Now, is this a questionnaire that you have or do you send it to them or do you sit down with them or do Zoom these days? So, you know, it's, it's basically a one-on-one coaching with them. Um, it's the first initial session. We can do it by Zoom or we can do it by phone, whichever they're comfortable with. But I really like it to be hands-on so I can truly get to know who they are and if it's something that's a good fit for them because I really want what's best for that individual. And some people just... They just don't. I, I literally had someone come to me in in a panic saying everything was falling apart. But after speaking with her, um, she she ended by saying, you know, honestly, I haven't been happier in my life. Um, and I told her, I said, look, really what you're going through right now is you're having a few hiccups. But it sounds like for the most part overall at the core, you are where you want to be. So it can, it really can go either way, and it's all about the the client. And um, wh- where can somebody access, or or what's the best way to contact you if they want to have a a career breakthrough assessment done? Um, honestly, it's probably the easiest thing to remember is to go to my website, and my website is I'm not toast dot com. That's a great website. <laughs> I am I am toast. <laughs> dot com is my should be my website. <laughs> anyway, um, that is an excellent website. I am not toast. Uh, now the other thing. Now, what is it that you do once? And I know it's difficult, but maybe you can think of of a, of a case. But what are some of the more common things that people need to do to actually treat or help them with burnout? You know, every time I go to put together a webinar or a program, I always want to provide people with something so super tangible, right? Because we're looking for the quick fix. But to be honest, every time I start a call with a potential client, I tell them, look, I am not a fairy godmother. I cannot boop you over the head and make everything better. This is going to take some work on your end, but I am giving you all the resources and the tools to do it. But most importantly, I'm going to be there with you, alongside you. So as if you are if you are an individual who is feeling burned out and you don't know what to do or where to go next and you're feeling hopeless, I am there to help guide you through. And that's what my program's all about. Like I mentioned, it's all about looking at yourself internally, asking the why over and over again, because we are extremely impulsive creatures where we go with just the first emotional message that comes across, usually without understanding why it's happening. So the most valuable thing I offer in my program is not my materials, it's myself, because I won't let you drown while you're trying to figure out what you're doing and where you're going, whether that ends up being you stay in the career you're in with a renewed sense of purpose and understanding um, your life's need and fulfillment, or, you know, like I told clients, whether your your deepest, um, what I call full need, what you need to feel fulfilled in life is to go sell smoothies on a beach somewhere, you know, so whether it means becoming an entrepreneur, whether it's changing careers or staying where you are, I'm there to help you through the whole process. And so that's kind of what the program looks like in a nutshell. And does it start with self-care? 
Yeah, absolutely. And that's what the, that's what that why is all about, because we don't give ourselves um, enough love, to be honest. We don't give ourselves enough self-care, especially when it comes to the emotional aspect of things. We're so busy being logical, which is all well and good. It helps you survive, but is surviving just what you want to do or do you want to live? And if you want to live, you need to really understand like I said, what I call the soul need um, to really feel that fulfillment and really align with what you're doing professionally. Absolutely. Um, it sounds like a, an amazing program, um, and I really appreciate you coming on uh, today to talk about it. And what are some of the things that nurses and med techs say once they are starting to live this new life, once they have realized that um, they don't have to live that way that they were, where it's chaotic and, you know, maybe not able to meet the, the constant demands. Um, what, what are some of the things you hear from your clients? Well, you know, honestly, um, and, and I, I, again, I always am really honest with my clients and I tell them you're going to have to do the work. Um, there is that period of trying to figure it out. And that period where I always tell them that you're going to get uncomfortable, but it's helping them see that the uncomfortable area is good and it's giving them a sense of hope and understanding that there's more opportunity out there than they can see. Like I always say, you know, you have a hard time understanding how to move forward from here because you're living your life. You're experiencing those emotions. You know, you are subject to everything that's happening internally, whereas I can sit up above and I can look at your life objectively and I can tell you, you know, this is what's going to happen next. And this is how we're going to handle it. And this is what to be prepared for. But overall, you know, as people are going through the process, even though it's a bit uncomfortable, even though everybody wants to fall back into their own habits and, and patterns, um, they do appreciate the progress that they're making towards getting out of the rut that there's. Absolutely. um, That's very rewarding. That's wonderful. It's fantastic work that you're doing and much, very, very uh, much needed in a pandemic. And uh, on behalf of nurses, being a nurse myself from the I Am Toast Club, (laughs) I really appreciate it. (laughs) That's Nicole Rand, my guest. She has an MBA and a CSP and her website is IamNotToast.com. So head on over there if you would like to get a career breakthrough assessment free. Thank you so much, Nicole. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, Marina. It was great being here. It seems just as we remove the masks, something else that's so tragic in the world starts, and that's with Russia invading Ukraine. I mean, really, how much can people of the world take, and how much can people of Ukraine take? It's very unsettling. It's, it's just so horrific. I mean, there's just been so much posted about this on Twitter and other social media outlets. And I mean, you're probably just feeling so helpless. And you know, what has struck me in addition to just many aspects and many of the tragic pictures that we have seen online um, of, of grandmothers offering sunflower seeds to Russian soldiers and saying, you know, may flowers grow um, when you when you die on our land, um, to people taking up arms, citizens taking up arms in the U- in Ukraine, uh, Zelensky just being like the man of the year uh, in terms of you know staying there, requesting ammo, not a ride. I mean, I mean he has really uh, turned out to be a hero here, and I mean every day it's it's tenuous whether he and his family are going to survive or not. And it's just horrific. And, you know, this is a health show and we don't often think of the health of people who are engaged in war, but war has a catastrophic effect on the health and well-being of the people of the nations involved. And and that would be Russia and Ukraine as well. But studies have shown that conflict situations cause more mortality and disability than any other major disease. Let that sit. 
more mortality and disability than any other major disease. It destroys communities and families. I mean, people aren't able to get the food and the medications and the water that they need. Um, you know, elimination is going to be an issue for people. People are riddled with anxiety and depression and those who have experienced it already or are currently experiencing it, it's going to get that much worse. I mean, it's just horrific. It actually, it, it destroys the infrastructure that supports health in those countries. It forces people to leave their homes and very few go back when they leave a country as refugees, very few go back apparently. People are displaced. I mean, it is just horrific, not to mention the violation of human rights and, and promotes violence as a means to resolve conflicts. But, you know, people can become extremely unhealthy during war. Health deteriorates and, and health professionals play an important role in minimizing adverse consequences of war and in preventing war itself. But, but that's another another issue. But, you know, armed conflict, which is what is going on, there and um, when Russia has invaded Ukraine, um, it causes a tremendous amount of death and disability, as I mentioned. And you know, communities are destroyed and cultures. And and as we watch online, and I mean, here we are watching a war online. As we watch, we can feel incredibly helpless. And you know, what what can we do as as people? And really, beyond praying, keeping people in our thoughts and prayers. And, you know, and prayers do work to some degree, but, you know, we really need to support the people of Ukraine. I saw online that uh, Ryan Reynolds and Blake Lively were matching funds for donations um, to a million dollars. So they, up to a million dollars, they were matching. And I just thought, you know what, that is the one for me. And so I gave to that organization uh, that actually helps refugees who are leaving. So it actually supports them. And so um, if you feel that you'd like to do something, and I mean, honestly, if people gave $5, $20, dollars, um, you $100, $500, whatever you can give, the more people give, the more... Um, they're, they, in that particular organization, will be able to match those funds. But there are so many different organizations that are asking for assistance, and the donations can be made through the links to their websites or social media pages. So UNICEF is one. They support health, nutrition, HIV prevention, education, safe drinking water, which is necessary in Ukraine right now, sanitation and protection for children and families. You saw the families and the, the children in the subways, and those people will definitely need help with sanitation. Um, also, there is the MSF, Medicine Sans Frontiers, Doctors Without Borders. Uh, they run a range of activities in the Ukraine, working with local volunteers, organizations, healthcare professionals to help people travel to healthcare facilities and access prescribed medications, which they often will go without during war. The Voices of Children, the Ukrainian Organization of Charitable Foundation, helps provide psychological and psychosocial support to children affected by the armed conflict. I mean, you can imagine at last count I heard there were six babies that were born um, after the invasion started I mean and, and I saw that they were moving the babies from the neonatal intensive care unit and hospitals to uh, other uh, underground areas I mean it's just horrific can you imagine if you had a baby in a NICU over there right now um, the sunflower of peace is a nonprofit organization they're raising money to prepare to prepare first aid medical tactical backpacks for paramedics and doctors on the front lines. And each backpack is designed for groups of five to 10 people. And they include an array of first aid supplies like bandages and anti-hemorrhagic medication and medical instruments, uh, um, according to their Facebook page. But, you know, whatever speaks to you, like, you know, it, all of these organizations will help but it would help if something in particular spoke to you, like perhaps Save the Children, which is based in London, helps to deliver life-saving aid to vulnerable children in the Ukraine and around the world. And the organization says it's on the ground in the U.S. and other parts of the world delivering essential humanitarian aid. And that is definitely what is needed uh, in Ukraine right now. And the U.N. Refugee Agency which I actually believe that that is the one that I donated to, that Ryan Reynolds is um, 
correct me if I'm wrong, um, but I'm pretty sure that's the one. Um, they provide emergency assistance to families in Ukraine, in the Ukraine, providing aid such as cash assistance and opportunities for resettlement um, in the U.S. So, I mean, I know that I that the organization and and I can check it out and tweet it out a little bit later. I have been tweeting it out actually, but um, I can tweet it out again. Um, but the UNHCR is working with the authorities, the UN, and other partners in, in Ukraine, and is ready to provide humanitarian assistance wherever necessary and possible. Um, so, you know, it would be great. That's all really we can, what we can do in the West is to provide some cash donations um, to raise money for food and medicine and supporting people who are leaving. So I really urge you to, to try and do something um, so we can get this going. And of course, keeping the people of Ukraine in our prayers. I mean, every morning I wake up thinking, oh, you know, Zelensky said he was the uh, number one target of Putin and uh, his family was number two. I mean, it's just tragic all around, but hopefully the world will, will gather. And I mean, the people of Ukraine have just done an incredible job fighting, um, you know, as resistance to the Russians. And so I just, just really keep hoping and praying um, that they get the worldwide support and, and we can uh, end this before it goes on for such a long time. And, 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 injures and kills so many people because that is what war is all about. But I'm so happy to see the world rising up to support the people in Ukraine. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.